Hi, I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Lapp. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Gerardo Mancia. Dr. Mancia is an associate professor in the School of Education at Edgewood College in Madison, Wisconsin, and the creator and host of the Educators and Immigration podcast. Welcome, Gerardo. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, um, Amy and John. You were undocumented when you came to the United States. How old were you when you arrived? And would you talk about your experiences as an undocumented student and young person? Yes. So my undocumented is something that I'm starting to share more op- openly now. There's definitely a lot that goes into my story. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm trying to do more recently is trying to figure out how to share my story. I feel like currently there's a new generation of youth activists, dreamers who are uh, sharing their story as well. And there was a huge movement called Undocumented and Unafraid. And so they were coming out of the shadows in terms of sharing their story. I feel like for me, it was a little bit different. My whole story happens before DACA. And so I have been undocumented in the United States for over 20 years. So I came at a young age. I was about seven years old when I immigrated to the United States. I did cross the border without inspection. And so I didn't have any interaction with the border patrol agents or anything like that. And so the terminology that gets used is entry without inspection, EWI. And the reason I mentioned that is because that's something that later on when I was able to adjust my status, that was one of the issues that came up in terms of pathways to citizenship or pathways to adjustment of status they ask you about how you enter and if you have a legal entry into the United States, because then that's going to determine whether or not you could complete your adjustment in the United States, or if you have to go back and do your processing outside of the country. And what kind of experiences did you have in school as being undocumented? Were you aware that you were undocumented? And was this something that you had to be careful about when you were you know, talking with school people or other students or your friends? Yes. So as I mentioned, my story was before DACA. So I feel like a lot of times there wasn't a lot of conversations about what does it mean to be undocumented. Many educators were well-intentioned in terms of trying to help, but not a lot of them knew how to help navigate the educational system. I knew from a very young age that I was undocumented. This was a conversation that took place in the household. And it was also something that stayed in the household. So we were also very intentional about not sharing our status with anybody else because we weren't sure what the possible consequences could have been. For example, if I would have shared it with somebody, would the police know about it? And if they found out, then what are the potential consequences for myself? In K-12 education, oftentimes you don't need to disclose your immigration status because K-12 education is public and free thanks to Plyer versus Doe, the Supreme Court case that establishes that you don't need to ask a student their citizenship status to be able to have them receive services. So I grew up in California and I was actually bused to a different school in California from where I was living. And it wasn't until third grade or so that then I moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, it was predominantly Mexican community that I was involved with there. And a lot of the times when I think about what were those obstacles or what were those challenges that I was facing being undocumented or those times that that came up, a lot of times if it was during middle school years and during high school years, when you think about different processes or different programs that students are being involved with, for example, in high school, I was thinking about like getting a cell phone. 
So one of the things you need to have a cell phone is to have a social security number because they're going to do a background check, credit score. So I, I couldn't get a cell phone. Driver's license was another example of where I knew that I couldn't get a driver's license in Illinois. And then there was also some opportunities that I missed out on because I was undocumented. One of the most vivid examples was when I was entering a art competition. I was into videography when I was in high school. And so we entered the competition and we actually won first place in the competition. And the first place prize was to travel to England in a youth exchange program from a videographer group from Chicago or from the United States was gonna go over there and then they were gonna send a youth group to the United States. Um, when the director of the program called us to let us know that we had received the, the first place award, I was excited. And at the same time, I was very sad because I knew that I couldn't travel internationally. And so that's when it, it was presented to me about this idea of like, do I share my story? Do I share that I'm undocumented and therefore I can't travel to the United States? This is somebody who I hadn't built a report with. I knew the person, I knew the director, but I didn't have trust in the director in terms of trusting them with my story, with my status. And so I had to really think about what does that mean for me to disclose my immigration status to this person who is part of the, or this organization. I kind of had to disclose it because then if I didn't, I wasn't going to be able to go to England and be able to return at that point. So I took the, the, the chance and I said, you know what, I need to disclose this part of it to them. And I said, I appreciate having won the first place. But that's something that I cannot take at this moment because I'm not going to travel. So I don't want to take that opportunity from someone else. And the compromise was that then we received second place for that competition, even though our work had earned us the first place. So I feel like there was many of those stories where you go through life and you see, you know, you're on documented status and you have opportunities, you have challenges, you have things that constantly force you to think about what opportunities am I missing? What things am I not going to be able to get? And I reference this as a roller coaster that you are trying your best, you're doing everything you're supposed to in schools, and then something happens that makes you wonder and makes you question, what am I doing this for? What is this going to look like in the future? And that particular story was one of those that had me think about like, well, I've been working really hard at this video production aspect of my life. I've been, I'm, I'm good academically. I'm good in extracurriculars. I'm working usually after schools as well. And so I'm doing everything I'm supposed to, but yet there's time and time again that I had situations like that where I had to kind of disclose my status and I had to kind of figure out how to learn who to trust in the schools and who I could trust with my story. Roberto, to give this some context, what years are we talking about? So I came in the 1990s into the United States. And then when I was growing up, it was before the 2000s. I just had a follow-up to that story you were just telling about the videography. Was it complicated then to have to explain to your co-producers of it why all of a sudden you were second place rather than first? Or did they do it in a way that nobody else knew so me and my best friends were the ones who were who entered the competition together and we were both undocumented and so amongst ourselves we kind of knew where we were and what it were some of those challenges again other things that come to mind are like trying to get a job for the first time trying to get 
I think the cell phone is the one that kind of sticks out because it's something that you needed to have a specific number for. Um, but I feel like we had had those conversations internally amongst our friends and amongst the person who I was, my mentor basically that was help, helping me, they knew my status as well. And so we were always trying to figure out what does that look like to help navigate that system. But once it came uh, out to the rest of the group or to the rest of the organization, they never heard, knew about that story because it was a conversation that took place between the director that was calling us to congratulate us on the, in the first place. And so then nobody else kind of knew that in the background and we didn't have to disclose it either. So at that point, it just became our story that we knew internally, but we kind of had to process ourselves. And oftentimes I would always process with my mom as well, because then it's like that question of I'm trying really hard. I'm doing what I'm supposed to but yet something doesn't seem to be working out right now. How have things changed for undocumented students since the 90s? I feel like right now, I mentioned it earlier, there's been a lot, a huge push from youth specifically of trying to pass DACA. DACA was passed because of the youth that were coming out of the shadows. They were the ones being going on the protests. They were the ones mobilizing. They were the ones fighting for this nonstop. I think that after the 1990s, the DACA was 2012. And so I moved to Madison around the beginning of the 2000s. And so in Madison, one of the things that I remember fighting for is what does that comprehensive immigration reform look like? And so the DREAM Act was first put before Congress in 2001. And so since that year, this is something that has been being fought in legislation for over 20 years. So I just wanted to contextualize that idea of this has been a fight that has been going on for so many years. And I think that depending on the state and depending on the situations, there were some things that were more affordable than others. So for example, when I first moved to Wisconsin, you were allowed to have a driver's license, even if you were undocumented. So I came here for school. And even though I was undocumented in Wisconsin, I could get my driver's license. And Illinois, I couldn't get my driver's license. And so something as simple as that, that there was the, the, the state difference, something that was a different lived experience. And that in Wisconsin didn't change until 2007 when the real ID kicked. So when that kicked in, then you couldn't, you couldn't get your driver's license in Wisconsin if you're undocumented. Other things that change is the in-state tuition. And so again, it's a different fight and a different battle that had been fought for many years. In Wisconsin, we were able to get it for about a year. From 2009 to 2010, we were able to get in-state tuition for people who had grown up in Wisconsin, had graduated from Wisconsin high school, and were going into school. Now for that particular year, they were able to get in-state tuition. However, that was taken back by the next governor. And so then that was then removed. And so while things continued to improve and there were some opportunities, or in general, there wasn't a lot of support at the national level until DACA, where in 2012 that happened. And again, that was a student-led student movement that allowed individuals to then be able to have a work authorization and to be able to then have an ID and a driver's license and a social security number. And so like when that came into play, then that opened so many doors for so many people. It's not a permanent solution, but it is a pathway. It did provide a lot of opportunities for many people. And now, of course, there are young people who are now not allowed to 
to apply for DACA. Is that correct? That correct. that's been cut off. Can you talk about that briefly? Of yeah, so DACA was introduced in 2012. Then there was another extension of DACA. It was called DACA Plus and DAPA for parents that was introduced in 2014. And so the idea was, how do we continue expanding the opportunities for many more people, including the parents? I should back up and say that DACA was an executive action. And some courts started putting in court cases to try to stop DACA from moving forward. And so as the program was trying to expand, DACA Plus and DAPA, there was a court case that was put forward or several court cases that were put forward. And so then that caused that program to be halted. So we never heard more about those two programs because that program was challenged in court and then it was stopped. And since then, from 2012 to the present, the way that people have described it is DACA being in limbo because there's been so many court cases that have been put forward that have been trying to stop it. The former president talked about completely ending the program and putting fear in, in our communities as thinking about how this program has constantly been attacked. And as each attack comes forward or each court challenge comes forward, then there's different stipulations that come that move, push forward. Since it was launched, there was one opening to be able to put in new applications for new applicants to be able to apply for this program. But as it currently stands, new applicants are not are not being processed. And anybody who did apply, those are being halted as well. So if somebody applied during that gap, then those are being halted. The newest news was that there was no new, the DACA was going to be able to continue, but there was no new applications available to be put in. There is one part of DACA that I did want to mention, and that is advanced parole, which allows students to be able to leave the United States and come back if they have specific purposes, such as work, education, or humanitarian purposes. And so that's one of the things that I'm working with an, a couple of other colleagues on trying to develop a program to try to take actually individuals this winter to Mexico for an educational program. And we're actually going to put that together as part of, we're calling it MISOL, Mexican International Study Opportunity for Learning. And we're going to take 17 or 18 participants to Mexico to work with La UNAM and Universidad Autónoma de Mexico. And so that's going to be one way that these students who have DACA are going to be able to leave the United States and then be able to return. And when they return, they will also have a legal entry into the United States as well. You mentioned the issue of in-state tuition. Um, what are some of the key issues for undocumented high school seniors and their families as they prepare to leave K through 12 system? The colleges cannot deny you acceptance or admissions just based on your status. What normally ends up happening is that the challenge or the obstacle becomes a financial aid. Depending on which state you're coming from, then that might give you some possibilities of possible funding. And depending on which states you're also coming from, that might also put some barriers. Wisconsin is known as a lockout state. And so what that means is that there's no in-state tuition currently, and there's no support at the state level for undocumented students or DACA students. Um, there's other states like California that have specific in-state uh, bills such as AB 540 that do support the students who might be undocumented in terms of going into higher education through in-state tuition. And then they have additional state support aided, the state back aid to be able to support students going into higher education. The process, while it might be similar in terms of, of applying for college, the biggest obstacle that I've seen has been the financial barriers of how do students get enough 
uh, scholarships or enough support to then be able to apply for an institution and be able to have that covered. And then the other thing is also FAFSA, when you have mixed status families where the students might be US citizens and the parents might be undocumented, then there's a specific way that you do that. I believe that you put like all nines or all zeros in the FAFSA, but then that's another way that the students who have mixed status families can also apply for FAFSA even if their parents are undocumented. The other thing that I would add is this idea of motivation or this idea of how do we normalize the conversation with our high school students, that college is an opportunity, and how do we make it transparent on what those processes will be? So for example, at my current institution, we have a page that's open to the public that says, if you're undocumented or if you have DACA, here are the steps that you need to look for, or here are the steps that you need to follow. Because even though they don't qualify for FAFSA or financial aid, there might be a way that we have an internal uh, FAFSA-like application where then we can still determine what is their, their need or their family need based on their application process. And so I think that as we think about going into higher education, institutions have to be able to make that more transparent for the students and for their families. And we need to normalize those conversations about what are other worries or what are other things that kids might want might have as they think about going away to college. Sometimes it's a local institution, sometimes it's a, an institution that's further away, which then brings in the idea of housing and boarding and thinking about what does that look like to then, if you don't qualify for financial aid, how can you get your housing paid for then? Or what would you need to do to be able to pay for housing while you're also attending there? And there are some national scholarship programs that do try to support students that are in lockout states. So the Golden Door Scholarship is one of the ones that is able to support across the United States. The Dream.us is another one. So then there's two big ones that are trying to address this idea of what does it look like to support students who are in lockout states to make sure that they could continue on to higher education. As security at school buildings tightens, there are more requirements for adults entering buildings to have government-issued identification. How has this affected undocumented parents? That's a really good question. I think that some of the school districts that I've worked with here do ask you to present an identification for you to be able to come and visit the schools. The school district where I did it, I actually handed them my, my ID, my Wisconsin ID. They scanned it, and then that actually created my ID tag that I was going to be wearing that particular day. And I think as I was reflecting on that experience and my background being undocumented, I thought about what does that look like to then be able to create an environment that while the practice might be to be supportive and to think about security into our schools, how do we normalize that process to make sure that people and families don't feel excluded through that same process? And so thinking about what other identifications might people use, for example, I'm from Mexico, and so we have the Mexican consulate ID. And so thinking about how do we work with our administrators or administrative assistants in the schools to let them know if the parents or guardians don't have a U.S. issued ID, maybe they could have a different form of ID, or maybe there's a different way that we could have that families don't feel like we're turning our backs on them because we're requiring this particular document that they might or might not have as well. And so then again, how do we normalize that conversation so it doesn't become that the families have to self-disclose it, but rather how do we intentionally put that up in the front foreground to say, welcome to our school. One of our procedures is to ask for identification. If you have a, a state issue ID, 
please present that. If you don't have a, a state issue ID, here are some alternatives of things you could also present. And so then you're you're normalizing that conversation. And so you're giving the, the communities also that opportunity to say, and ideally, if we know our communities, then we want to make sure we welcome them as much as possible so that they could feel like they're part of that process as well. So putting aside that issue of documentation, many children of asylum seekers and refugees come from very traumatic situations, both in their home countries and route to the U.S. and upon their arrival. So what kinds of support should the schools be providing? So my background is on in, in teacher education, but also ESL and bilingual education. And so language access is another thing that usually comes up for me as a immediate need. As we think about different communities, different immigrant communities, different migrant communities, I feel like the schools need to be responsive to how are we welcoming different languages, different cultures, different groups of students. And again, documentation might be part of that. But then in addition to that, it's also how do we get our schools and our school staff to know like the diversity of immigrant issues or immigrant statuses as well? So we have undocumented, we have DACA, we have asylum seekers, we have refugees, we have TPS, we have visa holders. So then there's so many different possible pathways that people might have. And so I think part of it is also working with our school staff to know that there might be similarities in terms of needs, and then there might be differences as well in terms of needs. So as I think about what are the needs for our communities, if one of the first things is a newcomer center or a newcomer support services, ideally, if the school offers ESL and bilingual education, then that might be one way of supporting the students. Another way could be thinking about how we're supporting the families as well in that whole process. And depending on what the process is or the migration story is, then there might be some wraparound services that we could also think about. In addition to the academic stuff that we're doing in the schools, what else might be needed in the community? Are there counseling services? Are there social services? Are there rental assistance? Are there medical clinics? So that, that way they could have a well-rounded wraparound services to make sure that we have all the different needs to make sure that our students are healthy and safe in our schools. And so that's another way that we normalize those conversations so it doesn't become them asking us for those services, but rather when we have a new family come in, maybe we just have a folder that has all of these resources available. With COVID, food pantry and food security was one of the biggest issues. So thinking about how we're providing food for our families or different food pantries where they're available to be able to get some support in addition to potentially the rent assistance that we also saw during COVID for many of our families. And so I think for me, it's always that idea of what's going to be good for one community is going to be benefiting all the communities as well. And how do we then normalize this idea of welcoming somebody, having a welcome notebook or a welcome binder that has these resources available for them, again, without putting the burden on the family to be the one to have to ask us. And then if by having those resources, then we could say, if you need further assistance with any of these, then we can walk you through it or we can connect you to that community agency that's doing that work. That's another way that the families are just receiving the information without having to disclose anything about themselves. And that's something that works for a lot of our communities. As I think about in Wisconsin, we have newer refugees from Afghanistan. Right now, we're getting a lot of students from Venezuela as well. And so thinking about how are we supporting the different communities 
based on the context that they're coming from as well. And so thinking about Ukraine and the Ukraine refugees that are coming in as well. So I feel like there's so many different communities that need support. And so the question for me is how do we standardize that into our school systems so that our educators know that, what are the different possible resources that they can share with their families and their communities? When you say we, are you referring to the schools or the educational community? Is, is the school kind of the one-stop shop for incoming uh, new immigrants? I think that the schools are one of the first places that the new immigrants are going to be coming to. So a lot of times there's relocation services. In Wisconsin, we have the Jewish social services, for example, that does a lot of the relocation for our refugee communities. And so they might take the first support in terms of setting the, the kids up and the families up with housing and with getting them settled. But then after that, one of the biggest places they're gonna go to is gonna be the school systems. And so in schools, we always, always worry about the content uh, and what the students are learning. And for me, I feel like schools can also be a place where we could worry about the rest of the wellness of the student. And as I mentioned, by trying to normalize these procedures, we could then work in partnership with a lot of the organizations that are also in our communities and also know of the services that are available for our communities. And that's something that could benefit both newcomers as well as kids who might be in our systems for several years and who have lived in the same community for several years. But it's up to that point, they might have not needed any of those services yet, but then there might be a moment where they might need them as well. And so then normalizing those resources for the whole community. What are the obstacles that schools faced in, in providing this, these sorts of supports? The first one that comes to mind is capacity. <laughs> I mentioned the, the importance of school staff knowing, having like background information. How do we stay up to date with what's going on in our news, what's going on in our world, what's going on in our communities? And capacity comes to mind in terms of thinking about how can educational leaders prioritize this particular area of creating that welcoming spaces to make sure that we're responsive to the community needs. In Madison, some other schools have turned into community schools. And so one of the things that they're doing is that they're trying to figure out how to capitalize with the educational aspect of it during the traditional school day system, but then keeping the doors open afterwards, then be able to collaborate with school partners, community agencies, to think about what other wraparound services can we bring into the schools rather than having our families go out into the, the community to look for them. Is there any way that we could do the opposite and have the schools actually serve as that model to then be able to have after school programming for kids, maybe classes for parents, maybe thinking about mental health supports that that could be a clinic or a drop-in services, thinking about health as well and general screenings that the schools can support in collaborating and coordinating. But as you mentioned, I feel like the challenge often becomes that capacity and thinking about then how do we then, because we know that there's gonna be a capacity issue, how do we leverage this to make sure that this becomes part of our strategical framework to have their students be successful and thriving in our schools if we take care of their well-being if we take care of their wellness and if we take care of their mental health then they're going to be able to be present for the academic in addition to the rest of the stuff too what inspired you to start the educators and immigration podcast thank you for that question so i kind of began that this conversation by talking about being formally undocumented 
having lived as undocumented for over 20 years, <clears throat> definitely a lot of my stories, there was a lot of things that I lived through that, again, I it was before DACA. So I had to kind of figure out how to navigate the educational system myself. I had to figure out how to apply for school. I ended up doing my bachelor's degree, how to apply for the bachelor's degree. I finished my bachelor's degree in elementary education. So I actually was had a teaching license in the state of Wisconsin, but I couldn't teach because I was still undocumented. So I went to one of my mentors and I said, what do I do now? And so she was like, you could go, you could continue on in school and you could get a master's degree. And I was like, what's a master's degree? She's like, well, you know, you could continue going to school and just continue doing a, a specific research study. It took me five years to finish my bachelor's degree. So I was like, I just finished five years of studying. You want me to stay in school longer? She's like, well, yeah, this could be an option for you to continue going to school. So being a first generation and not knowing what the master's program looked like or what it was, I ended up applying to various programs and ultimately accepted to, to enroll into two, two programs simultaneously. So I did a counseling psychology program and a curriculum instruction program. In my head, they were in the same school. So I was like, how hard can it be? They're in the same school. I'm taking classes in the same building. <laughs> Little did I know that they were two full-time programs <laughs> that require my full attention, each of them. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize that I had to do two theses for each of, for each of them as well. And being a first gen, I didn't understand that. In my head, it seemed easy. I was like, let's just go ahead and finish these two programs and knock them out. So after three years, I did finish both programs. And at this time, I had my teaching uh, license, I had added an ESL license, I had added a bilingual license, and I had added a school counselor license. So I had four licenses that were that were issued by the Department of Public Instruction in Wisconsin, but I was still undocumented. And so I'm like, okay, now what do I do? I finished another master's degree that I didn't know I could do, and now I'm still undocumented. I can't, I know that the schools need me, and I know that they need teachers, and I know that they need counselors, and I know they need bilingual teachers, but I'm undocumented, so I still can't work. So I went back to my same mentor, and I was like, what do I do now? Like, I feel like I'm on another fork in the road. I am trying really hard. I did everything I was supposed to. I graduated. I got these degrees. What do I do now? I feel like I have another stomping block in my in front of me. And she's like, well, have you tried, have you thought about doing a doctoral degree? And I was like, what is a doctoral degree? <laughs> she's like, well, you know, you continue going on to school and you continue learning about something specific. And I was like, okay, I just finished three more years after the five years that I didn't think I was going to do. And now you want to do a doctoral degree? She's like, yeah, that's, that's an option. <laughs> so I ended up applying to the same institution, getting my doctoral degree. I was still undocumented when I started my doctoral degree. And I was fortunate enough that with my two masters, I had so many qualifications that it opened a, a different pathway for me to get my status adjusted. So one of the pathways that you could get adjusted is through employment-based adjustment. And so that means that you have to have qualities and skills that, quote, no other U.S. American has. And so then you have to prove that there's no other U.S. American that has the same skills and the same mm -hmm. um, abilities that you have. Luckily, I had four degrees. <laughs> they were all in education and in counseling and in ESL and bilingual. And so that presented me with an opportunity to think about this is an opportunity to show that I have skills and knowledge that no other U.S. American has because you would need to have been doing the same process that I did 
to be able to get those four degrees at the same time, basically. And so with that, I was able to prove that there was a job opening that no other U.S. American can, can fill because of my degrees. And then that's what allowed me to get my legal permanent resident card, my green card. And so the podcast, what I wanted to do was bring those conversations to the public, going beyond this idea of Immigration 101, what is being undocumented, what is a dreamer, what is DACA, to what else can we talk about that is going to provide those key pathways or these key resources for our students to be able to continue thriving in our communities. One example of those was I recently had a guest talk about how to create your own LLC if you're undocumented. So as an an undocumented person, you can't work. But if you create a business and then you work for that business, then the business can work. And so it's the same person doing the same work. But if you make it into a business, now you could work and now you could have contract and you could work as a 1099 as opposed to you working as yourself. We need to have more of those conversations to normalize what are different pathways, what are different programs that we could take advantage of, and how do we continue pushing each other to make sure that we could create success for all of us and we could all move forward together. Thank you, Dr. Gerardo Mancilla of Edgewood College and the Educators and Immigration Podcast. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and colleagues. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized social-emotional learning programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.